During World War II, some notable American businesses supported the Allied cause while simultaneously conducting highly profitable business with Nazi Germany. This included some very well-known companies, General Motors, Ford, to name a few, Chase Manhattan. A man named uh, Edwin Black wrote a thoroughly researched book entitled IBM and the Holocaust. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's a fascinating read. I've not read it. I've read excerpts, excerpts from it. And in his book, he, uh, he depicts the true image of IBM during the period of 1933 through basically 1945. And he shows us that Hitler's regime used IBM's automated technology that was invented for the 1890 census in America to be deployed in such a way to categorize and track, track Jews and other ethnic groups who were deemed undesirable to the regime, to track their whereabouts and their numbers. Furthermore, this project was understood and approved of by Thomas Watson, IBM's CEO. In fact, he went over in 1933 and, and at other times and surveyed their situation and prescribed for them the use of his technology to accomplish their, their ends. And in short, IBM's census technology was used by Nazi Germany to organize slave, slave labor initiatives and to manage the death camps that we so well know about to this day. In his book, Black Charges, that uh, IBM's machinery continued to upkeep and service their technology throughout the war years, as well as to supply them with punch cards and everything else that they needed to em employ the, the systems that IBM developed. They, in fact, bought a, subsidiary, bought a company in Germany, made it a subsidiary of IBM so that they could circumvent the economic blockades that the Allied countries had put on doing business with the Nazi regime. Hitler's camps could have never managed the numbers that they did without this technology. What, what they pulled off was phenomenal, and it only was because of technology that IBM provided for them. And the Germans agreed with this. In 1938, they gave Thomas Watson what they call the Merit Cross. It's, a, it's a, an award established for non-German entities that helped the German cause economically and financially and Thomas Watson was the recipient of this award and uh, his contributions to German industry. Meanwhile, back at home, IBM is supporting the Allied efforts to, to track troops, to recruit troops, to deploy troops and assets and resources. So they've got a foot in both worlds, don't they? They were double-minded. William R. Hawkins, a prominent national security expert, rightly claims this. He says, when a national security, when national security and profits sorry, when national security and profits collide, expect businessmen to be businessmen. And Jesus tells us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've got a dilemma here as we look at this history of our nation and, and our businesses. And we see double-mindedness everywhere. We see an absence of purity of heart. We see a complex heart, a divided heart. And Jesus warns us very clearly in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to be about having a pure heart and that having this pure heart will result in us seeing our God, beholding our God.
This is the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus directly speaks to the heart, but this is not a new concept in this sermon. The poor in spirit is a heart condition, right? When we are poor in spirit and we realize our bankruptcy before God, that is a heart condition. When we mourn over the sinfulness in our lives and the sinfulness in the world, we mourn from a grieving heart. When we're meek, we are humble of heart towards God and towards man. These are all heart issues. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's a heartfelt hunger and thirst. And when we're merciful, that's a heart for the people who need compassion. We demonstrated that heart yesterday in Granbury. Many of us went and served those that needed mercy. We did not do it to get mercy from God. We did it because we've received mercy from God. And we have a brother, a pastor, Colton, and his wife and family that are going to need mercy. And we have loved ones that are going to need mercy. They're downtrodden in life right now. May we be ones that go to them with merciful hearts to minister with them, to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here this morning, Jesus specifically now names the heart. And you will see the heart as a serious issue, a, a central point to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Just think about it. Jesus is going to tell us in a few Sundays, or this afternoon if you go read it, <laughs> he's going to tell us that it's not, the, the law is not just about don't go murder. Jesus drives it to the heart and says, you shouldn't even be hangry in your heart towards your brother because that's a murderous heart. He tells us that we should not look at another woman with lust. Because in our heart, we've already committed adultery if we do that. So this introduction here in the Beatitudes of the heart is going to be set off and shined throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be a heart-driven, heart-focused sermon. So Christianity is about the heart. We are saved by what we believe in our heart. We are not saved by what we do or don't do with our bodies. We are saved in our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart. And if the heart is right, right actions will follow. We don't do right actions to have a right heart, do we? If the heart is right, the right actions will follow, and wrong actions reveal wrong hearts. Wrong actions reveal impure hearts. Our culture could care less about the heart. The world that we live in in the world that has always been here, could care less about the heart. The enemy, the adversary, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he could care less about the heart. The world's focus is on our actions. It's on our bodies and our feelings, right? We see this everywhere we go. Just look at what we try to do to make the world a better place to live in. Have you looked at all the efforts of our government to band-aid issues and never address the heart of the people. Our government is not sufficient to make us pure in heart. It's, it's applying a band-aid when a tourniquet is needed, when a, when a heart transplant, better said, is needed, right? That's the right medical analogy. Our government's putting band-aids on people when we need heart transplants. Our culture does not promote things of the heart one bit. I've got a list of examples here. Here's two or three. The culture does not promote faithfulness to others. The culture promotes personal happiness. 
And so if it, you're going to be unhappy being faithful to someone, you deserve to be happy more than they deserve faithfulness, so go be happy. The world does not promote repentance. The world promotes entitlement, right? I have a right to feel this way. I have a right to do that instead of I must repent of my sins and bow my knee to God and be pure in heart so that I may one day see him. This is railing against the word. The world is railing against the word. Here's another example, current. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, has just released a study. And they have determined that 20% of Americans' youth, age 18 and under, has mental illness now. Okay, what do you do with a statistic like that? Well, here's what the CDC and many people are doing like with that. They are turning that into an opportunity for profit. And so now our schools are going to crank out psychiatrists who are going to prescribe drugs that the drug manufacturers are going to manufacture, and they don't know what it's going to do to the minds of these children. And we're going to have an economic engine that is cranked up, and no one is ever going to go to the hearts of these so-called troubled 20% and try to point them to Jesus Christ, the only cure and hope that they have. Instead, there's going to be this effort to medicate them and to get them to express their feelings and hang on to the baggage that they're hanging on to, and they need to be told, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So our culture has no category for this. Our culture scoffs at any concept of curing our heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as his disciples and his followers, we must be a people about the heart, a heart that's steadfast after Jesus Christ. What happens to a culture that does not have a pure heart? What happens to a culture that has no desire to see God? It collapses. There is no cure on this earth for the things that ail us. We must have Jesus Christ and him crucified and buried and resurrected and coming again and we must have the Holy Spirit that's given to us through faith in Christ if we are going to have a pure heart we do not need the government we do not need psychoanalysis we don't need shock therapy we don't need drugs we need Jesus Christ and our culture laughs at us when we say that and we need to graciously keep going to the culture with that message We don't quit. We keep going with that message, even if it means persecution. Stay tuned two weeks from now. What happens to a person who does not want to confess and repent of their sins, that has no desire to see God? He collapses. She is never content. He or she despairs and turns to things other than Jesus Christ. To solve their problems. The problem with the culture that we live in is that we try to solve human problems while paying no regard to the hearts of people towards God. If we live our lives like the world desires, we are responsible citizens at best, making our way ever so surely to hell. If we live our lives like Christ desires being pure in heart, the promise is that we will see God. And we're going to unpack this morning what that means, what it means to be pure in heart, and what it means to see God. So first, let me say this. As we look at blessed of the pure in heart, Jesus does not extol here in the Beatitudes the blessedness of the intellectually brilliant. Okay? 
He doesn't extol the greatness of being physically strong or emotionally stable. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. What is the heart in this passage? It is who we really are in private. What is being pure in heart? It's being pure in who we really are in our private all-alone times while we're driving, while we're laying in bed sleeping, while we're working, while we're eating. Our inner thoughts, it's who we really are in private. And it's a part of our life that no one knows about. No one can discern the true purity of my heart. No one but God. Right? God knows the heart. God tests the heart. God exposes the heart. God convicts the heart. God changes the heart. No man can change my heart. It takes God intervening in my life. And Jesus is concerned with who we are in the deep recesses of our hearts. You know, we need to be careful. We don't, we don't literally say this in our lives, but we, our actions and, and our subtle thoughts maybe are bent in this direction. Jesus Christ did not come to break us of some bad habits. Okay, Jesus is not some guy that's a crutch for some of us that, that he'll help us break that bad habit and we'll be a better citizen on earth and things will be okay. That's not why Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came to enact upon us a heart transplant. And he did it by dying and rising on the third day from the dead. And he did it by ascending to the right hand of God the Father. And he said, it's good for me that I would go. Because in my place, I will send the counselor. Okay, not the psychiatrist, not the psychotherapist, the counselor, capital C, Holy Spirit, who will teach you and will say to you everything that I have said and will affirm every word in this scripture and not speak anything contrary to it. So Jesus came to enact upon you and me a heart transplant. That's good news. Because without him, our heart is corrupt, it will not be pure, and we will not get this promise of being able to see God if we have no heart transplant. So what does it mean to have a pure heart? This is a real simple definition. I don't want to get real technical this morning. A pure heart is a desire for one thing and one thing only. Okay, pure, one thing and one thing only. Now, let's apply Christianity to it in biblical truth to it. A pure heart is one that desires God and God alone. Nothing else that this world has to offer. Not fame, not fortune, not power, not privacy. A heart that is pure desires only Jesus. Give me Jesus in all circumstances. And it's pure, the heart is pure in two senses. Number one, we can have a pure heart in that we have intermoral, inner moral holiness, private integrity. Who we are in private in the recesses of our heart is who we are before God. That is inner moral holiness or pureness of heart. Psalm 51.10, David says this, after he has not been pure in heart, by the way, he's not been pure with Bathsheba and Uriah, right? He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We're going to talk more about this concept of renewal. I'm going to tell you that renewal of a right spirit within me is a heart transplant. 
And David asks and acknowledges that he needs this heart transplant from God the Father. In the negative sense, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. I want to show you what Jesus says about the the heart that is not pure. And we need to read this passage and understand that there is a warning here for even you and me. So Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. We're going to read 25 and 26. Actually, we're going to go through 28. Jesus, in this part of the the book of Matthew, is interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees who have been peppering him with questions, throwing doubts, throwing obstructions in his way, and he pronounces upon them seven woes. Now, what does Jesus pronounce upon his disciples in the Beatitudes? Eight blessings, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Over here with these Pharisees, he pronounces seven woes. We'll not look at all of them. Let's look at verse 25. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You see the absence of a pure heart? You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the opposite of blessed are the pure in heart. And by proclaiming a woe upon them, he is not saying you will see God. You will see death for eternity because your heart is not pure. You outwardly appear it, but inwardly you are not. So the second thing that I will tell you, first, purity in heart is inner moral holiness. Second, it is being single-minded, or it's not being double-minded. Listen to Psalm 24, 3 through 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a what? A pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So we see from this passage that a pure heart is a heart that has nothing to do with falsehood. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. You embrace falsehood. You appear on the outside as one thing, but inside you are yet totally a different thing, and you don't even know it. So a pure heart is one that has nothing to do with falsehood, and also a pure heart is one that is painstakingly truthful and free from deceitfulness. Free from deceitfulness. Listen to this. Deceit is what you do when you will two things, not one thing. When you will to do, have two things to be true, you are deceitful. You will do one thing and you will will that people will think you are doing another thing. So while you're doing this, you're hoping and willing that they'll think you're doing that. That is being deceitful. And that comes from the heart And God knows that heart, and he sees it, whether you and I see it or not. And Jesus says, 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the single-minded people, not the double-minded. And blessed are the ones who are innerly who they are outwardly. So purity of heart is the will to do one thing, and namely I've said in our Christian context here, it is to see the face of the Lord in all things. Said another way, a pure heart is a simple heart. Simple and singular in focus, not divided. And its focus is on the kingdom of God. So here's a question that we all have to ask. The pastor asked this during the week as he studied. Now you get your turn. Is my heart complicated or is it single? Is it singular in focus? Do I stand before you for the glory of God or do I stand before you for the glory of me? Do I stand before you for the glory of God or do I stand before you to manipulate you to do what I think you ought to be doing? May it be that I always stand before you and say, thus saith the Lord to you and to me. And together let's heed his words and together let's be pure in heart and together let's see God. James 4 eight. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You hear the warning there? That warning is there for you and for me, day in and day out. We are always called to seek a pure heart and to have a right spirit before God. Well, let's look at the promise that comes with those that have a pure in heart. They shall see God, is what Jesus says. And to see God is to experience the ultimate fellowship with God in his kingdom. And you remember I've said his kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully consummated. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said as he walked on earth. It's here. I'm ushering it in. But it's not yet fully realized. There's a day coming when Jesus will come a second time, and then the kingdom of God will be fully, fully unfolded before us. And so I'm going to say this morning that I think it's deeply embedded in the heart of every human being. I think it's in yours and mine, those that I know. And that is that we desire deep down, we may not be able to put words to this every time, but deep, deep down in here, we desire to see God. Do we not? We're made in God's image. We bear the image of our Father. And we crave to see Him. And so the problem is... We turn to so many different things in this world trying to satisfy this craving to see God. And we're never, ever going to be satisfied. So to see God is what we ultimately desire. We all want to know why things happen. We all want to understand why last night has occurred in the Ardall family. One day we're going to understand more. We all want to understand why God made this world. We all understand why did God allow Satan and the angels to fall? Why did God allow man in the garden to defy him and not be pure in heart in the Garden of Eden? We all want to know why these people built this tower to Babel. And we want to know why Joseph was sold into slavery. We want to know why these Israelites asked for a man king when they had God as their king. And we want to know why Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Why, Lord, why did you allow this in your sovereignty? Why did you allow this? It didn't surprise you, but you've allowed it. Why, why, why? 
That's embedded in all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. And so my question is, and, and I asked myself this week in the study, does the concept of seeing God, is that boring to me? Yeah, we'll see God. Is that, or does that just really grip me that, yes, I want to see God? Well, I'm going to tell you this morning, I know a family that wants to see God right now. So this is our craving, yet we turn to other things in this world to satisfy this, and those other things will only disappoint. Moses had a strong desire to see God, didn't he? You know the story in Exodus? Father, if I could just see you, listen to Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. I think we're all saying that at different times in life. Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Why? Because man doesn't have a pure heart. Man needs a heart transplant. Man needed a Christ to come and to die and to rise. Man needed a Holy Spirit to indwell a heart so that the heart could be pure to God. So even Moses wanted to see God, and God said, I can't let that happen right now. You'll die the minute you do. If there's a day coming when those who are pure in heart will see God, listen to Revelation chapter 22, 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So Moses is told, you can't see me, man can't see me and live, but in Revelation we're promised there's a day coming when we will see the face of God. And Jesus bridges the gap with the Sermon on the Mount in this beatitude, and he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We all want this. And there's only way we get it, is through the purity of our hearts. So no longer will there be anything accursed here, it's said in Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be cancer. No longer will there be old age. No longer will there be unfaithful spouses. No longer will there be suicidal tendencies. Gone. All the accursed things that happened as a result of the fall will be no longer. Why? Because of the Lamb that is seated on the throne with God the Father. The Lamb died. And if we believe in that Lamb, we will be in His presence forever and there will no longer be these things that happen in the world as a result of sin. Because all hearts will be pure. Now, we have pure hearts because it says here, His servants will worship Him. We must be servants of our Christ, of this Lamb. We cannot be double-minded. We cannot be impure in heart. We must be servants of Christ, pure in all of our thoughts, in our actions, in our deeds, and then we will be able to see Him.
Remember what Psalm 24, 3 said. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? To ascend this hill and to stand in his place is to see him. And it's the one who is pure in heart. So what does Jesus mean here by they shall see God? Is this something that's only waiting for us in Revelation 22 in the end? Or is there any implication now? And I think we live in the already, not yet. I think we can already see God in ways, but we cannot yet see God in the fullness. If, he, if we did, we would be warned as Moses was, and we would not be able to live any longer. So in the already, we can perceive God, we can see his ways in our fellowship with him as we interact with his word and as we're indwelt with his Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you that, that I can't say yet what it's going to be, but we are going to be able to see God in the Ardall family in the coming days. We're going to get a little glimpse of what a gospel encouragement can be to a grieving family or to a grieving employee. We're going to see this. We're going to get this glimpse. We will see God if our heart is pure and we want to see God in action in this catastrophic situation. I think that's true. I think you, I've talked to many of you and you've been able to tell me there's times in life when you said it's certainly God in the hand of God in this situation in my life. Blessed are the pure in heart, you shall see God now and forevermore. So there's the now. And we see God because we know him through his revelation. There's so many people, mm, there's so many people craving for a supernatural sighting of God. You know these people. And yet they will not come to his word and see him reveal himself to them through this day in and day out. Let's be a people of the book. Let's be a people who are in this word because our hearts are pure and we want to see God. Not in the tricks and the supernatural things of the world, but in his divine choice for revealing himself through the written word. But let's look at the not yet. I've said already we can see God. We will see him move in this family. But it's also not yet because ultimately when the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in and Christ returns, Revelation 22 says we will see his face and live and rejoice and worship and the things that are accursed will be no more. A day's coming. We're not there yet. We're all craving for it. We're all longing for it. And in times like these with what's happened in the last 12 hours, we're saying, Lord Jesus, would you please come back? Would you usher us out of this world that's fallen? Would you get us into your presence? We want to see your face now and forevermore. That's what we're saying as we mourn and as we grieve in this time. So now let's go back to some personal application. What did you think about the IBM story in the Holocaust? Does that enrage you? I read that and I, I, I pound the desk and I say it cannot be. And yet you and I know both that it is happening right now in our very midst with things that we're even unaware of, isn't it? It's happening. Double-mindedness rules this world that we live in. And when we discover it, we scoff at it and we're abhorred by it. But I want to say to you, as I've said to myself all week, be careful. Be careful. Because... We all are on the verge of being double-minded. We are all on the verge of not being pure in our hearts. And so just like IBM, if we're faced with opportunities 
to profit from two contrary stances. We're going to be tempted. I'm not saying we're going to do it. We're going to be tempted severely to have a foot in both worlds. You know, some of us can say the most important thing on Sunday morning is Jesus Christ. But come Monday, my most important thing is customers and prophets, right? We can do this. We, we understand this. This is our condition that we have to fight against and we have to heed Jesus' teaching of blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You know, a husband can pledge faithfulness to a wife but give inappropriate time and attention to another woman. And his heart's not pure towards his wife. It's divided. It's impure. And a wife can do the same thing. A wife can pledge fidelity to her husband, but emotionally she can give herself to another man. A businessman can put a Christian fish in his Yellow Pages ad, a Christian fish in his company logo, and he can drive around proclaiming Christ and getting business with Christ, and he cannot honor his warranties and his service contracts. Once Once he's booked the business, he can walk away and count his money. You can come to church once a month at 10.15 on Sunday morning. And the other three Sundays and the rest of those weeks, you can live like the devil. And you can be fooled into thinking that you're pure in heart when you're not. And I've kind of alluded to this. A pastor can seemingly preach the truth of God to a congregation. But do it for personal gain or the power of manipulation, or just a desire to be liked. So we can all be tempted to not be pure in heart. And I stand before you as the first in line to face the temptations. And may God raise you up and me up in our lives to call one another to be pure in heart so that together we can see God. Be warned by this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What would God do with a church like ours if we were nudging each other towards this purity in heart, this single focus towards the glory of God in all facets of our life? What would God do with us if we invited one another into our lives on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday through Saturday and didn't just invite one another into our lives on Sunday morning when we gather here? What would God do with us if together we pointed one another to this beatitude of heart pureness towards God. We would see him together. And the world would look in and the world would perhaps see him for the first time as well. So my challenge to us this morning is that we would start getting involved into one another's lives so that we can make sure that we do not get derailed like IBM did or like the businessman or like the husband that I've cited in these examples will do. And we need to stir one another up to live for Christ in all that we do. So I conclude with this. Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are the intelligent, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the beautiful people of the world. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, something that we can't see, something invisible, something that only he can see. Jesus doesn't say, for these blessed people will change the world. For they will become famous amongst the people, or they will have true power. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall get to do what they ultimately all want to do at the bottom of their hearts. They will get to see their maker and sustainer, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So seeing God is the great goal of being pure in heart. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is that our desire and is that our goal? Or do we want to check in here and get outside and traipse through life pursuing the things that we've given our hearts over to? Knowing full well you've been told this morning they will not satisfy and they will not last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this teaching this morning, this call to be singular in focus after you and your Father. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would do as you promised in John 14 and 16, and you would send the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would have this Counselor speak to every heart in this room, and every heart that is normally in this room but's not with us today. And that you would clean our hearts and purify our hearts with the Word of God. And I pray this, Father, so that we could see you. I pray, Father, that we would embrace Hebrews twelve fourteen, Strive for the peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. May we be a church that strives for this purity of heart. And may we be a church that does it together for your glory and for our benefit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.